This is Tax Update for Saturday, November the 3rd, 2005. This week's podcast, Substance Over Form, Who Can Absurd It and When? The Tax Update podcast is intended for tax professionals and is not designed for those not skilled in independent tax research. All readers and listeners are encouraged to do their own research to confirm any item raised in this presentation before relying on the position presented. The audio and the materials for this presentation can be freely copied as long as no charge is imposed for the listening or the obtaining of the uh, podcast or the materials related to it. Now, this week we're going to consider the issue of substance over form. And the matter arose because of a discussion on online forum that I visited this week where it was questioned whether or not you could take an entity and essentially have amounts that were paid to an individual, treat them as if they were the corporations, and then have the tax go through the corporation, the issue. This arises sometimes because taxpayers would like to structure their transaction in certain forms, but the other party to the transaction objects to paying to anything but the individual or has some other reason why they can't, perhaps regulatory or other issues that arise or contractual issues that arise. Therefore, in that situation, the question becomes, can you treat the payment as being made to the corporation instead? Well, this week the tax court dealt with a case, Arnold v. Commissioner, TC Memo 2005-256, that they released on October the 31st, where they ruled that a husband and wife did not show their income for services they had reported on separate S-corporation returns were truly the income of the corporation, and the court held that the taxpayers were liable for self-employment tax and the amounts received. Now, the cases covered a number of other issues related to a failed S-election by another corporation that we're not going to get into this week. Uh, the Arnolds had a few problems. Uh, not the least of which was Mr. Arnold was an accountant, but he was an accountant who the court noted had been suspended from practice before the Internal Revenue Service in 1991. Mrs. Arnold was a real estate agent. Each of the Arnolds formed their own S-corporation, so we had two S-corporations, one conducting accounting services and one that was supposed to be in the real estate uh, activity. The corporations did not pay the taxpayers a salary during the year. Well, we can see where this one is going. This is a self-employment dodge issue. They were trying to get around the self-employment tax by having the S-Corporation basically earn the income and pass it through. But they did get a little cute because they didn't take distributions officially. The amounts that were distributed to the Arnolds during the year from each corporation were treated as loans, and they executed promissory notes for the balance due at the end of each year. Now, I am sure the Arnolds felt that that got them around the problem that usually surfaces in the S-corporation cases, which is that the IRS reclassifies the distributions as salary. In this case, the Arnolds will claim, well, we had real notes, and real notes therefore beat the salary issue. The problem was the IRS attack point didn't come from that direction. Rather, we had a different problem. But in any event, they paid no payroll taxes on any amounts received from this corporation, including the amounts covered by the notes. Now, Mr. Arnold personally contracted with employees and independent contractors for services and then leased those employees to his S-corporation. Interesting problem. 
he charged the corporation 25% more than he paid these service providers, which amounted to 17995 He then deducted various expenses that he claimed were related to this leased payroll operation. The operation on his return he treated as rental activity, not subject to self-employment taxes. Okay, so Mr. Arnold had a S-corporation that supposedly practiced accounting, and he had a leased operation that he said was rental income. So he had a couple of ways of getting around the self-employment tax. None of his income he claimed was subject to SE tax. Now, Mrs. Arnold was a real estate agent under contract to a real estate brokerage. Now, Mrs. Arnold's, the checks to Mrs. Arnold were issued not to her S-corporation, but were paid directly to Mrs. Arnold in her name. Now, when she signed her Form, 10, form W-9 to the agency in 1999, she noted on the bottom of the form, please do not issue a 1099 for me. At the end of the day, the IRS objected, claiming neither corporation was the actual entity that earned the amounts in question. So basically, the IRS took an end run around the taxpayer's claim that they had gotten around the self-employment problem because they actually owed the money to the corporation and, of course, someday would pay it back. What the court did, though, was unwound the process, treated all the income as personal service income personally earned by the Arnolds, Arnolds and subject self-employment tax. In essence, they had gotten a little too cute. And the problem became the attack did not come from where the Arnolds expected, that is, reclassification of earnings as self-employment income, which I am sure their theory was it was earned in this year. When they pay it back in later years, they could take a distribution to pay it back. And in those years, if they hadn't incurred the services, the argument would be it didn't wasn't for those services. But they were too cute. The IRS got around the problem. And why did they? Because the court noted that for income for services to be properly taxable to a corporation instead of the service provider itself, the taxpayers have to be able to show two facts, and the Arnolds did not show these facts. Fact number one, they must show they were employees of the corporation in question and received the income from the services that they perform. Well, the court agreed they were employees. Under IRC section 3121D1, by definition, these officers would be employees to the extent they had performed services for the corporation. Hey, they're okay, we're okay there, although they didn't take any salary. Well, the problem, though, came with the second prong of this test, and this is the prong that will cause us problems whenever we try to treat income that is being paid directly to the shareholder as if it was being paid to a corporation. We must show that a contract or a similar agreement exists between the corporation and the person or entity using the services that recognizes the corporation's right to direct or control the work of the service provider. That is, the other party to your arrangement has to agree that the corporation is who they are contracting with and that the corporation has the right to control your services. That's true even if the corporation is owned 100% by you, and basically, therefore, you're the one who controls the actions you take, that doesn't help. If the other party will not sign with you, and in many in the cases here with the real estate agency, we had an agency that did not sign with her corporation, and while the court didn't comment on it, it appears that Mr. Arnold's clients also were not aware. He provided controllership services. They seemed to think they had contracted with him, 
Therefore, because they didn't show those entities believe they were working with the corporation, it was not the corporation's income. Now we get to the assignment of income doctrine. That is, the court held that what Mr. Arnold tried to do, and Mrs. Arnold tried to do, was assign income that was theirs to their corporation. The court points out, you can't do that. The problem becomes that if you try to assign income that's yours to somebody else, uh, that doesn't work. Rather, you receive the income and then you give it to the corporation. So mechanically, the Arnolds earned the income, then they apparently loaned it to their corporation and had the loan repaid. So that was an in and out, no transaction. As well, getting back to Mr. Arnold's leasing operation, the court in that case denied all deductions for lack of proof, and the court held that that was service income, self-employment income, and Mr. Arnold owed the self-employment income on that amount. Now, what this case illustrates is the difficulty of a taxpayer attempting to take the substance over form argument and use it on their behalf. What's the problem here? Well, substance over form is the argument that what really happened in the transaction is different than the formal structures indicate happened in the transaction. In the Arnold's case, the argument is that even though they were paid to them personally, the reality was the corporations were running the business and therefore the income was the corporations. The IRS is successful in asserting this in many cases, especially the tax shelter cases. And we're going to talk about two other instances where the IRS did successfully assert it. So what's the taxpayer's problem? The problem here is, unlike the government, the taxpayer does not have, the taxpayer has control over the form of the transaction. I had to sign on the contract or enter into the agreement to perform the services with my customer or my client. Therefore, because I had control, or in this case the Arnolds had control of where they entered into the relationship, they could have insisted the corporation be the entity or they could have refused to enter into the transactions. But the fact they contracted personally meant that they went in with eyes open with a personal contract. As such, the Arnolds were stuck with that result. Now, there are some rare cases where taxpayers have been able to argue substance over form, but generally it will require an inherently and very unfair situation that will get you there. In this case, it did not help that Mr. Arnold appeared to have dirty laundry. He was trying to get around the self-employment tax. He was trying to be cute. And I believe the court and the IRS decided, well, we'll just work it this way. In essence, he had little chance of getting the sympathy he would need to get a finding of substance over form in this case. But you should consider if your client asks for the same issue or asks to do the same thing, you may have a problem. In the discussion forum online, this was on the Accountants World discussion group, there was a discussion about a State Farm agent who was personally contracted and who the poster indicated was having trouble getting State Farm to agree to a contract with the corporation. Could he treat it as the corporation's? The problem in that case is the same one here. The other entity is refusing to recognize the right of the corporation to be the party in the contract. As such, the IRS would likely hold that any attempt to move it into the corporation as an assignment of income 
and any tax benefit obtained by moving it to the corporation is going to be lost. It's going to be taxed as if it was a sole proprietorship, not under the umbrella of the corporation. The issue is you have to respect you're in charge of the form. Generally, you have to respect it. Now, let's go on to another failed case of the taxpayer attempting to assert substance over form. This is the case of Maniglia versus Commissioner, Tax Court Memorandum 2005-247. In the Maniglia case, the taxpayer, who was the executor of the estate, was essentially taking the position that for estate tax purposes, a piece of real estate was not owned 100% by the decedent, or the decedent's revocable trust was actually the question here, but rather was owned as a partnership between the decedent's son, who happened to be the executor, and the decedent's trust, so that the entire value of the real estate should not be taxable to the decedent's estate. However, there was a little problem here. Actually, there was some good facts in favor of this. The taxpayer had reported this activity on a partnership income tax return from 1978 through 1999, 21 years of reporting this piece of property, this parcel, as a partnership return, a Form 1065 between himself and his mother's trust. So the taxpayer had this history of reporting in this fashion. However, there was the problem. The property was still titled in the name of the decedent's estate. In fact, in the decedent's trust. Every piece of paper with a third party continued to show that the item was the decedent's. It was always titled in the name of her trust. The only thing arguing that it was owned jointly was this partnership return, where the argument was made that because we had filed that return, that showed joint ownership. The court held, again, that the taxpayer could not assert substance over form in this case. The problem was pointed out was that the form was clear and it kept coming up consistently and over all that period of time they continued to report this as owned by the trust. The court also was unimpressed with the accountant who testified on behalf of the estate. Now this was just probably not a good result for them, but the accountant who testified indicated that he could not remember when he was licensed as a CPA, how long he'd been preparing the returns involved, and oh by the way, he admitted that his license had been suspended in the past due to this tax evasion problem he had. Again, not the best testimony one could have on the stand from the accountant saying what was going on. The accountant also indicated that he had never really known or seen any evidence that it was jointly owned. He had just taken the son's word. Now, the son claimed that everybody in the community knew he was a part owner and manager, but the court pointed out that since he was trustee of the trust, he would have managed it either way and would have been seen the same as either way. He could still own it as part of the trust. The problem here is the formalities weren't followed. Now, it's possible they weren't followed just out of sloppiness, or it's possible that mom did not want to give up control and, in fact, had not transferred to the son. 
that is an especially a problem with the decedent since we obviously can't ask mom or, even, or judge mom's credibility as to whether or not she thought it was jointly owned. Uh, whether or not she had a reason for not retitling it because mom's not available to answer the questions anymore. But the real problem the court had was that all the outsiders were getting notices that kept saying it was owned by the trust and nobody seemed to know this partnership deal except for the IRS was being told it was a partnership. The court disagreed, held that in fact it was not a partnership asset. They had failed to carry the burden to show that it was a partnership asset and that the entire value of this property would be included in mom's estate. When does substance over form work? Well, as noted, it tends to work more often for the IRS. I remind you of a case we talked about a couple of weeks ago, Carnes Prime and Fancy Food Limited versus Commissioner, Tax Court Memorandum 2005-233. If you remember in that case, the court held, and that was a payment of an advance, or what the court held was a payment of an advance on purchases in the future, basically rebates on future purchases that a supplier gave to their customer, but it had been structured as a formal note, and the court noted that if it followed that form, it had a note and it was not income to Carnes. However, the court said in this case, they felt the real structure of the transaction was an advance. The court in this case distinguished this from the situation in Erickson Post Acquisition versus Commissioner and the Commissioner versus Indianapolis Power and Light, as we discussed back when we discussed this case. If you have somebody who receives this type of payment and you want to try to defend against substance over form, you're going to have to go back and do a very careful study of the Erickson Post Acquisition case, Tax Court Memorandum 2003-218. Because to meet that test, it's not going to necessarily be very simple. To come in and get something that the court will hold was actually meets the Erickson Post test. In this case, it's somewhat of a difficult method to prove. Now let's go back and take a look at the other developments for the week. There are a couple of other developments that are kind of interesting for the week that have come up. Let's start with first a matter of note that may be very important to you if you prepare returns. A lot of us do. And if you prepare extension returns, some of your clients don't manage to get filed on time. If that is the case, and if your clients aren't getting filed on time and they go for extensions, as you remember, in the past we had to worry about the first extension for an individual income tax return that got us out four months, and then a second extension for another two months, the 2688. As well, if you had non-corporate entities, you found that there was a mishmash of extension periods, most of which were three months. Some of them required excuses to tell you why the person couldn't file. Some were automatic. Some needed other things. There was a whole slew of forms to file. Well, earlier this year, we got a hint that the individual extension would go to six months when the IRS released the draft of 2006 Form 4868, and a number of people noticed that that form now indicated a six-month extension. Well, it turns out today the IRS released the regulations to support this, and we discover that there's going to be more changes than just the 4868. In fact, we're going to get a new form 7004 that will replace a whole group of forms that we previously filed to get extensions. And due to this change, most non-corporate extensions will be automatic six-month extensions. 
Form 7004 will be modified to use by a number of entities. Taxpayers that previously filed Form 2758, an extension of time to file certain excise, income, information, and other returns, will be able to file the modified 7004. As well, those who filed Form 8736 and 8800, partnerships, real estate, mortgage, investment conduits, and certain trusts, will now file a modified Form 704 again to obtain an automatic six-month extension of time to file the return. Forms 2688, 2758, 8736, and 8800 will exist no more. They will be obsoleted. These regulations are effective for automatic extension of times to file returns that are required to be filed after December 31st of 2005. That means they apply to 2005 returns and any 2004 fiscal year returns that has an original due date after December 31st, 2005. Uh, 2004 fiscal year filers who have due dates after December 31st, 2005 should continue to use the old forms to request an extension of time, but the IRS will grant a six-month extension of time to file the return if the request otherwise would qualify under the regulations, except for the use of the specified form, that is, the modified 7004. Now, there is one other minor change. The standalone form six-month extension of time to file a gift tax return, Form 8892, will be modified. It's not going to become part of the 7004. But it will be modified to remove the requirement to give an explanation of the need for the extension, and no signature will be required. These were issues that quite often tripped us up on all the extensions, where you had the various extensions that had to have a reason and that had to have a signature, and if you managed to neglect one or the other of those, you ended up with a disallowed extension. Now we're getting rid of those trip-up points. Now, remember, though, on the gift tax return, the taxpayers who have an extension of time to file their individual income tax returns are deemed to have an extension of time to file their gift tax returns. So those taxpayers do not need to file the Form 8892. But the 8892 is used in a standalone situation where the taxpayers is not getting an extension of time for the individual return, but where the taxpayer is going to still go for an extension of time to file their gift tax return. Finally, an interesting battle that the IRS is fighting and not doing well on, the IRS continues to lose the battle on the communications excise tax. They are battling this little detail. There, the question involves a case originally that came down back in May, May 10th, the American Bankers Insurance Group case from the 11th Circuit, 408F3-1328. That case, the IRS lost on appeal to the 11th Circuit Court of Appeals the issue of whether the excise tax under Section 4252 apply, that applies to toll telephone charges are based on time but not distance if it would still apply to those. The definition that is in there tells us that a toll telephone service means a telephonic quality communication for which A, there is a toll charge which varies in amount with the distance and elapsed transmission time of each communication and the charge is paid within the United States. Now, the IRS has taken the position that goes back to a 1979 revenue ruling on landline communications from C, that the and there should mean that the tax applies to charges based on distance and the tax applies to charges based on time, as well as applying to those that have both. The court in the 11th Circuit disagreed and said, no, the obvious meaning of that 
because there really was no service that anybody has found yet that based solely on distance, that in fact they were talking about one that required distance and time the way long distance used to be billed. When someone signed a contract for long distance that was based solely on time but did not factor in the distance involved in the call, in that case that was not subject to the 3% excise tax. What's the stakes here? The government estimates that $9 billion, that's billion with a B, dollars in refund claims would be required if they have to refund the tax to those that have paid it who are getting charged a flat rate per minute without regard to the distance of the call. Now the IRS, as we said, insists this defines two types of charges. The 11th Circuit rejected that. Now, on October 20, 2005, the IRS warned taxpayers must continue to pay the tax to collecting agents, that's basically the long-distance carriers, uh, who must remit that tax to the IRS, and that claims for refund would not be processed. It'd be held, waiting the future cases. Even in the 11th Circuit, that had held that, in fact, the, this check did not apply. So the IRS took a strong position. In doing it, they pointed out that they were pursuing separate appeals in five separate circuits. And they noted in this October 20th notice that the Office Max case in the Sixth Circuit was awaiting decision. Well, the Office Max decision came down. And that decision came down on November the 2nd, 2005. In that case, the IRS is not going to be happy with the decision. The Sixth Circuit went the same way as the Eleventh. It awarded Office Max a refund of the tax it paid. And the court specifically rejected the IRS's reliance on Revenue Ruling 79404. What the court says, which isn't very flattering to the IRS, about this notice which basically said the tax should cover ship-to-shore communications even though the notice admitted that communication did not meet the literal requirements of the statute because it did not vary with distance, but it had to be what Congress meant. The court said this statute, this notice generated by an agency that frequently insists that citizens turn square corners, this revenue ruling no more supports an essential method of tax imposition than it does an essential method of tax payment. As other parts of our opinion explain, neither the legislative history nor one-sided generalizations about the purpose of the law make the case for straying from the ordinary meaning of language in the statute. Agencies in the end receive skid more respect because of the persuasiveness of their reasoning, not in spite of it. The IRS was argued they should be granted the right to interpret the statute and it should be granted respect. The court essentially said your interpretation is so far in left field, we're not going to count it. Now, it remains to be seen whether the loss in the Sixth Circuit will now cause the IRS to give up on this only a few days after they announced everybody you need to keep collecting the tax, or whether the IRS now is going to pin their hopes on the other four circuits they're pursuing this in. We'll have to watch and see what happens on this case, but it provides an interesting view of a couple of things. First, statutory construction the importance and the ultimate superiority of the code over other types of guidance. This is an excellent case that shows how you look at the statutory construction and you take a look at what the words mean in the statute. 
And if the IRS has a revenue ruling in place or some other document that claims to interpret the statute against its plain meaning, the court may very well not go along with that. In fact, now we have two circuits that essentially have said, forget it, IRS, we're not going there. That interpretation is spun out of basically whole cloth, has nothing to do with what the law says. The law is clear. And if Congress truly needs to change this, Congress needs to change it, not the IRS deciding what Congress would have done. As well, it shows us that we need to be aware of the reasons for something. Too often we seem to be aware of, well, the IRS position is X and we go for it. In this case, we have a position that the IRS position clearly is not one the courts are accepting. And if the core IRS continues to lose this case the odds are at some point they'll be forced to back off. If there are significant claims for refunds out there, taxpayers should be filing for them now to preserve their rights because statutes will be expiring. Also, it provides us a look at strategy. The IRS decided not to appeal the the 11th Circuit case to the Supreme Court. Why not? Probably a couple of reasons. Reason one there's a good chance the Supreme Court wouldn't take it and they would deny certiorari in the case. That looks bad. But a major reason why they might not is because there wasn't a division of opinion in the circuits. Secondly, the IRS would hope to have a division of opinion before an appeal is taken to the Supreme Court. In that case, at least they've gotten a court to agree with their position, as opposed to going up now where the courts have not agreed so far with their position, and they've lost in a number of district court cases in addition to this loss in the circuit. Finally, the other danger with the Supreme Court is if you lose there, you can't dig in your heels. The IRS clearly does not want to lose this $9 billion. More to the point, there is some reason to doubt that others in the government want to lose it, but nor do they want to pass a tax increase. And obviously, if this is not the law and we reinstitute it, that is tough to argue you're not imposing a tax increase because the tax didn't apply. So for political reasons, it probably is incumbent upon the IRS to continue to fight this battle. So hopefully nobody has to come back in and raise $9 billion some way after the courts have said you can't collect this tax. So it will be an interesting case to watch. We'll see how it develops going forward. This has been Tax Update for Saturday, November 3rd, 2005. This tax update dealt with substance over form, as well as an update on some of the developments this week. Tax Update is intended for tax professionals and is not designed for those not skilled in independent tax research. You are expected to confirm any positions stated in this podcast before acting on them or acting on them on behalf of a client. This has been Tax Update.